My name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast, where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is about the things that matter to them. I am so happy to be here today with a fellow who I've met in person, a really cool guy named Frank Austin. Frank Austin, do you know that music? Um, it sounds like the kind of thing that I'm going to kick myself later for not remembering, and it sounds vaguely <laughs> White Stripes-ish, so that's, that's that, my guess. That's actually fair, but it's a, it's an Australian band called Wolf Mother that I'm afraid uh, I only know from rock band, uh, uh, and that's a song in rock dude. Like, can you play rock band? Um... I play rock band. I am I am not nearly as serious about rock band as your uh, previous guests have talked about. Oh, yeah. it. Um, We've had some serious folks. Well, let me. Yeah. Here's here's if you ever play rock band, there's a great song called "The Joker and the Thief" by Wolf Mother. Here's how it starts out. I'm going to play for you a little bit of it. I love the song, and I can never get past. <laughs> it's just like it's just like guitar masturbation. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know. Time, so I can't get to the cool part of the song. Are you uh, are you familiar with Mike Patton at all? Sure, absolutely. He the, does the voice work for Left for Dead. Everybody yes. knows. <laughs> um, there's a very uh, there's a really great video of Mike Patton being interviewed while Wolf Mother is playing in the background. Ah, and I, and I suggest you check it out. So I won't spoil it for you. Okay. Okay. Good. Now, what? Uh, I actually, I, I, you know, I know he's the voice in the. He did the voice work for that game, The Darkness, and Left for Dead. But he's a. Uh, I, I want to say, what, like, wasn't he with some kind of like pop band? I feel so inadequate that I don't know that. <laughs> um, he's in. He's in quite a lot of bands. He's very prolific, but he's um, widely recognized as being the frontman for Faith No More, Faith which no is more. also which is also in rock band. Right, right. Okay, good. Thank you. That's that's a like I would have embarrassed myself guessing. I was gonna say it was some like '80s pop band or something, but that's not really what's going on there. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, let's see. Uh, uh, we're gonna talk about Thief in a little bit, but before yep. we get to that, let's talk about Frank Austin. Have you ever had a goofy forum name, or have you always been Frank Austin? Uh, I've had a couple goofy forum names on other forums in the past, um, but for the most part, I really like to use. Uh, my at least some semblance of my real name um it's it actually stemmed from me i really hate being called by my nickname when i'm playing games with people Uh, (laughs) what is is your nick what's your game nickname it depends like uh before i before i paid microsoft for the privilege of changing my live username um (laughs) my name was hero imprisoned and uh people would call me hero and i would find that really distracting So. <laughs> that that almost sounds condescending, like yeah. sport or pal or champ, <laughs> hero. <laughs> so I had to change that, um, and uh, that was a part of why I've always tried to stick with some, using something like my real name. Well, it helps with your real name because I, I, I'm a bit older than you, so to me, your name makes me think of the $6 million man. Right. Steve <laughs> Austin. Yeah, uh, or, you know, the professional wrestler, Steve Austin. Yeah, that's not really the circle that I move in. Sorry. No. <laughs> you're, 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 you're named after the you, – you're like the son of the $6 million man. <laughs> yeah, something like that. That might have actually had an influence on uh, uh, my mom. Um, Austin is actually <laughs> my middle name. So Now, you're, you're, uh, does your middle name begin with an X for real? No, Austin is my uh, my middle name by birth. 
but it has I since changed it into my last name. I like it. Very well done. Now you're a you're a transplanted Wisconsinite. Uh, how do you feel about what's going on in your home state, by the way? Well, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, uh, as somebody who um, is related to and friends with a lot of Wisconsin teachers, um, I obviously have fairly strong feelings on the subject. My mom is a teacher in Wisconsin. Um, she's a private school teacher, but uh, uh, I have lots of friends who teach in the public school system there. Mm-hmm. Um, and just just for uh, so that I can show a little solidarity with you, my little sister is a, a teacher in Wisconsin as well. So awesome. We've both uh, got that connection. So where, that said, what does – oh, she teaches at uh, the university at Rice Lake. Oh, right on. She's a literature professor out there, and oh. she's really obviously very affected by all this. Uh, yes, she's very strong into the protests and the movement. And uh, I'm, you know, I I don't think of my little sister as being super political, but mm-hmm. boy, she is now. Right. This uh, is the kind of thing that can really uh, politicize a lot yep. of people who are otherwise uninvolved. Um, that I think will be probably one of the better side effects for Wisconsin. Wisconsin could always use more participation in the process, no matter the politics. Sure, sure. That's good. Now, are you uh, discouraged? Because, of course, the law to take away the collective bargaining rights from the uh, state workers was just passed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you discouraged about this? Or do you think – like part of me, I watch this and think this can't stand – in the long run, there's going to be enough backlash that I feel like the Republicans overreached, and this will be a net positive for the unions and the state workers in the long run. Uh, I don't know if that's maybe Pollyanna-ish of me. Um, um, I, I, you know, I, I come at the whole situation from a, a not – uh, hmm, I guess a more radical standpoint um, <laughs> than like a straight – American left standpoint. Um, and so I'm wholly unsurprised by the turn that things have taken, you know, like seeing politicians, uh, at play in dirty politics is not something that, uh, you know, discourages me. (laughs) Uh, it encourages me. Uh, so I, uh, I walk away from that hoping that people will be more interested in the, um, the rules of the process that make things like this possible. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the elements of our representative, de- representative democracy that make it possible for Scott Walker and uh, people like him to do the things that they do. Right. right. So I'm hopeful. Um, I am, I am upset. Uh, I think that it's a big step backwards for Wisconsin. Um, and I think that a lot of people that I personally know are going to be deeply affected by it. And, uh, I feel for them and I feel for the state in general. Um, so it it does go deeper than that, but, um, I hope, I hope it turns around. Right. And I I can't help but think that it will. I mean, this is such a huge pendulum swing and it's such Mm -hmm. an, it's such an egregious, underhanded move I, I think by by walker and the republicans out there that i uh again maybe i, I think we're, we're on the same page but uh uh I, I i find the whole thing ultimately encouraging rather than a cause to be bummed out and it's easy for me to say you know i'm not in the position of my sister or your i think you said friends and family mm-hmm. you, you know i'm not directly affected by this uh but from a more dispassionate third-party perspective i'm like yeah cool let that stuff play out and see, you know, see what the fallout is. Uh, yeah. So, 
I think the biggest threat um, to people like us who are, you know, on the periphery or wholly uninvolved is the uh, momentum of union busting and the dismantling of the financial support for, you know, the American left yeah. or American American Democrats. Um, I think that that's a far more dangerous consequence for people like us who are on the national level and um, not necessarily directly related to what's going on. Right. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you I, I am so rarely in the politics and religion sub forum on quarter to three. Uh, do, do you wait around in there? Um, every once in a while, uh, I tend to be very short and PNR. Um, <laughs> I, but it's not always to my benefit, but I find that uh, a lot of the things being said in there are patently ridiculous and could use a bit of, uh, you know, brief snark to kind of bring them <laughs> back down to a more approachable level. Um, uh, it's It stuns me the, uh, the the sort of fortitude that guys like Tim Partlett, Jason McCullough, Lum, you know, Scott Jennings have, guys who, who continue to be, you know, whether I agree with them or not, just so patient and articulate and willing to have earnest long discussions long after I would have lost patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, those guys are amazing to me. I think they might be robots. I'm fairly convinced that there's at least one robot in there <laughs> and that it's Jason. I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, Jason is unreal. Uh, it's it's cool. It's it's weird seeing his name in the games forum. Like, I think he's involved in some Oblivion mod, and I'm like, wait a minute. That's the dude. That would be almost like having uh, Ariana Huffington in a big budget movie. It's like right. there's some there's some cognitive disconnect there. I don't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you know there are definitely players in PNR who uh, are more attached to that wing of quarter to three than any other, and yeah. it is always strange to see them moving about in other areas. Yeah. Now now let's talk about the forum for a second because I know you and I. Uh, I, I think we've always been very friendly. I got to, I had the good fortune to get to meet you at a gathering in the Bay Area. I guess this was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, and you're a dude that I, fe- I totally clicked with. Like, if you lived in L.A., I'd be hanging out with you all the time. However, you and I have had s- some differences about, like, how the forum is run. Uh, I tend to sort of take a behind-the-scenes approach where if I think things are getting out of line, I'll close an account for a while. I have at times gotten mixed up in, in arguments and debates and people get pissed off and they say snippy things. And, and I've certainly been part of that. Uh, so I wanted to give you an opportunity just because I don't want it to be like an elephant in the room. And I wonder if maybe people listening might wonder what we each think. I want you to give me I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, what things do you think have been screwed up with how the forum is run? Uh, do you think there are any things that, that I should do differently or better? I'm certainly open to hearing that, and, and I'd like to throw that over to you for a second. Sure. Um, in the interest of uh, you know not speaking for other people, <laughs> I'll try to keep it as much to the way I see things and like uh, that sort of thing as, as I can. Um, I, uh, I think that, by and large, Quarter to Three is a community that self-polices pretty well. Um, and I think that uh, also in that same effect, the biggest problem tends to come when the self-policing goes in a way that you don't like. Um, uh, and um, that tends to lead to like uh, uh, battles of words and, you know, whatever else may become involved, animated GIFs, uh, <laughs> about, uh, you know, what the community is and... Um, 
whether or not it can be self-selecting. I... I do think you take a very hands-off approach. I, I think, though, that um, when your hands come into play, they're often a little heavy. Um, okay. I think that um, there's kind of a problem with the technical limitations of the system. You know, I, I've mentioned this to you in emails before, and it was discussed a couple of times when we were still talking about uh, these sort of things openly on the forum. But uh, I have always been in favor of... Uh, uh, more of like a warning system than right. using bands as like uh, the band. Sh- the band should never be the like first step towards telling someone to calm down, essentially. Right. Um, and sometimes, since you are so hands off, it kind of it can kind of feel to people as though you're sweeping in swooping in on a thread rather and uh, dishing out a band for someone when you could have easily just have said, you know, let's take let's all take a step back and uh, you know persistent problems should be dealt with in, you know, a more effective manner. But I think for the most part, um, I prefer uh, community moderation that's a little more involved and uh, relies less on removing people from the community, be it even for two or three days at a time. Right, right. Fair fair enough. And I I certainly, that that had been in the past my approach. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a bit more... Partly time intensive, but also what happens is then things go on in the background that other people don't see. Mm-hmm. So when it does come to a ban, I feel like I have to explain myself, and then that leaves it open to it being misconstrued. Sure. Um, th- so just to give you an, an example, and I don't want to bring names in, but there, there, was a, there was a really ugly thread about the Japanese earthquake. Mm-hmm. And a fellow who I think meant well said a couple of tasteless things that, that were of questionable taste. He was trying to introduce a little levity. It was, it was a bit of a misstep. And and the, the fellow, you know, bless his heart, he was trying, but uh, it, it was clumsy. So a few people came out and basically said, you know, fuck you, uh, mm-hmm. which I can understand the sen- the sentiment. But I feel that some people should know better than to just drag the, the discourse down like that. Like sure. ign- ignore the guy or say to the guy that's really inappropriate. But to try to one-up the guy by then further making the thread worse, a new poster, that merits a little PM where I say, Mm -hmm. you know, dude, that's really not cool. But somebody who's been around for a while who does that, I feel like they should know better. And the easiest thing for me to do is to, like, close the account for a week or whatever. And Mm -hmm. if that person then wants to email me and say, look, that that was out of line, I'm sorry, then I will immediately turn the account back on. And, right. and, I, and I always have, have felt that way, and I, I hope I've made that clear in the forum rules, that if your account gets closed, please feel free to contact me. For the sure. most part, I'll respond to anything. The ban is a way of saying that's inappropriate. What used sure. to be a PM conversation, and, and I can understand how that will sometimes feel like, yeah, Tom's swooping in and shutting people out, so I can totally dig that. Uh, but I, I just feel like I've kind of been pushed to a point where that's the easiest way for me to <laughs> deal with it. Uh, and as long as I, I just hope folks understand that, that closing your account is never – it's always negotiable, almost always negotiable. Right. So if that ever is something that gets done to someone, you know, my email is available. Uh, I hope they'll contact me and, and, and talk to me about it. Sure. I think um, one of the things, one of the other things about that that kind of scenario that really is a, a sticking point for me anyway, is uh, it's not, on a forum, it's not necessarily the best way to uh, police by bringing into the equation like the uh, 
the experience of the posters. Um, okay. Because then the standards become muddied. You know, okay, if you're sure. if you're going to treat people who have been there since you know 2008 before, or have X amount of posts, or are just in general in your eyes more active, with like a different standard than new posters, then new posters aren't really clear what is and isn't acceptable, and you get. You know, the, I, I want. I also won't name names, but in the last <laughs> year, we've seen like a few new posters who seem to only have the intent of getting a rise out of older posters, um, and uh, there are definitely instances where it's kind of a head scratcher as to why that can go on. But uh, anybody sure. who's been around for a little while longer. Um, you know, gets treated differently. And I, I also totally appreciate the flip side of that, which is that like, yes, people who have been a part of the community and who know you and have had conversations with you should know how you want to do it. But, um, with community of that size, I think the easiest thing to do is have specific standards and rules and apply them across the board. Um, just because that way. And I, I agree in a best case scenario, Frank, I would love to be able to say that, but I just, I don't, I, I just have a hard time just making a clear cut uh, simple rules like here's a line if mm-hmm. you cross this line anybody crossing this line uh, this will happen I, mm-hmm. I really do firmly believe that people who have been on longer should be treated differently than people who are new mm-hmm. uh, and 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 while that can lead to this perception of double standards or inconsistency I feel that kind of flexibility really is important um, and and I hate that it can seem muddy. I mean, I agree with you that it, that it can seem muddy. But I, you know, let's bring in a real name. I love Bill Dungsterman. I love his. We all do. We all do exactly. And and I feel like like he should be treated differently than say a new guy like Octonu. And that guy I've talked to in PM, and I know he annoys a bunch of folks. He seems like a nice enough fella to me. They both have a similar approach, but I feel like Bill Dungsterman has earned a different kind of treatment than a new fellow like Octonu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can work both ways. And I feel that that kind of flexibility is important in running the community. And I don't pretend to claim that I'm doing it the exact right way. I, I hear what you're saying and I appreciate that. Uh, but I do kind of feel that there has to be different standards for different sure. types of posters. I think, and I, you know, I think that that also kind of ties back in um, to what I was saying about like the technical limitations where you don't really have anything that you can do except ban a poster to tell them that right, right. what you, the way that they're behaving is not agreeable to you. Um, one of the things that I mentioned before was how like a, a significantly larger forum community in the Penny Arcade forums runs on like a yellow and red card system where a poster can be warned for the content of a post um, and they kind of accumulate points like you would on a driver's license. And uh, <laughs> after a certain point in time, they are they get posting privileges removed, like they're not allowed to post images, um, and their avatars disappear. Uh, and they, get, <laughs> they get like a picture of a little jail jail bars. Um, and so that sets up a really easy, like visible thing for people to see, oh, this is the type of post that... Like, you know, will result in an infraction. And a banning only happens after, like, multiple infractions and repeated behavior, um, repeated poor behavior. Right. Uh, That's the kind of moderation that, uh, to me, works best because it's visible. It's, you know, it's easily applied across a lot of different 
personality types and it always takes the person out of the community as a last resort you know i think that ultimately you know quarter three is strongest because of people like bill and whoever else um and uh removing them from the community even for a short period of time should always be a last resort right in in theory i love that but i think i'm too technically retarded to figure that kind of thing out Uh, (laughs) well you have you have a forum full of technical people so I know, I know. I really have no, I can't, that whole technically retarded excuse, I can't really rely on that anymore, can I? Nope. (laughs) Well, all right, well, I appreciate hearing your perspective. Uh, Luckily, there have been no flare-ups, major ones, uh, but it's certainly stuff that I'll keep in mind. And and I I absolutely welcome folks PMing me. I I kind of hate that we have this idea now that let's not talk about it in public. (laughs) I don't know what to do about that. And I I hope uh, folks understand, though, that if you have input, Absolutely contact me. I I welcome hearing how the forum can be run better, uh, what things you take issue with. uh, And I'm sure we're actually – it's kind of like an earthquake where pressure builds up and then it bursts. So I think we're overdue for some kind of Templar here soon in terms of a banning policy drama. Uh, So next time it comes up, uh, I'll try to keep these ideas in mind, Frank. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your willingness to discuss it openly as well. Well, let's move on from, from inside baseball stuff. (laughs) <laughs> to uh, other, uh, I'm going to bring in another sports thing here. When I called you mm-hmm. on your Skype little picture, there's a scary. It's something from a horror movie. Where the guy <laughs> from Scream, he's like in an apocalypse and he's got a pirate thing on, and it looks like he's uh, ruining the world. And you told me this is from a soccer demonstration or something. It's actually during a match. During a match? Yeah, that's <laughs> during that a match. Why isn't that guy sitting in his chair watching the, <laughs> the, the plays unfold or whatever? <laughs> well, um, in in European soccer games, um, there are typically groups of fans that will never sit down and will never stop singing, <laughs> will never stop waving flags, will never stop chanting or supporting their team. Uh, and this is a picture of one of those guys uh, standing on a fence wearing a mask from Scream. Um, amidst smoke bombs and flags and uh, all kinds of other craziness, because he, he um, looks like yeah, he looks like a demonstrator more than a, a sports fan. And, and what you told me is that there is a tradition of uh, political uh, perspectives or political opinions or political expressions amongst soccer fans. Mm-hmm. Which, as a guy who knows nothing about sports, but I've seen plenty of sports fans, I can't imagine that being the case in the in the states. Yeah, it's it's very different over here. Um, the club in particular, that uh, the specific club that this picture is taken from is uh, a club in Hamburg in Germany, uh, FC St. Pauli. Um, St. Pauli has had, since the 80s, a tradition of uh, leftist politics in their fans. Um, they were never... Uh, They've never been a very good team, <laughs> um, <laughs> but their fans are very dedicated, and the fans are kind of what make the club special. Um, they in the in the eighties there was a rising problem all over Europe of uh, racism and uh, racist violence and uh, at football matches and soccer matches. Um, and St. Pauli um, kind of was one of the first clubs to explicitly state that they wouldn't allow for any type of uh, racist speech at the club. Um, They wouldn't tolerate it among their supporters. And the other Hamburg club, uh, Hamburg SV, um, didn't take a stance. They, they 
didn't really offer anything. And a lot of people flocked to St. Pauli um, because of that. And so the club kind of had this big groundswell of left-wing support and uh, just ran with it. They, uh, you know, around the same time, that district in Hamburg was shifting away from being like a, a dock district uh, and uh, had like a lot of squatters moving in. Um, so there were a lot of punks who would go to St. Pauli matches. Um, so the club has always had like a, a close tie with punk rock um, and that community and it continues to this day. Now, why doesn't that happen in U.S. sports? Well, or, or does it actually? Maybe I'm uh, giving uh, maybe I'm giving U.S. sports short shrift. I think that it, to a certain extent, um, U.S. sports aren't as political by nature as uh, you know European soccer can be. Um, you're, you're talking about a game that has organized rules of international competition um, as opposed to like something that's solely domestic. Um, it's it's always been a very different thing. Uh, sports in Europe, you know, it's, it's easy for a team from Germany to end up playing a team from, uh, Italy, like just happened this past week, um, in like a champions league competition, uh, or something like that. And so you get a lot of mixed politics from different areas already interacting with one another. Football has always been, and will always be a very political sport. Soccer. Rather. Yeah. Yeah. Overseas football. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, now now you say that. But like I think of uh, and here we go. We're, I'm up against the limits of my knowledge. <laughs> but you'll have a team from, say, uh, San Francisco playing a team from, say, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, very politically different areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet politics doesn't really enter into the equation there does it well i mean to kind of bring back stuff from wisconsin uh, a little bit the packers are a unionized team you know the players are union workers um and that's been brought into play quite a bit in wisconsin in the last oh no kidding Mm -hmm. like the green bay packers have come out in support of the state workers yeah the players union supports uh supports the state workers union um Uh and you know it's kind of a uh a slap in the face of Scott Walker, who likes who liked to talk about the Packers quite a bit when they won the Super Bowl. <laughs> um, there, you know, you'll, uh, Rafe has had a, pl- a bunch of pictures up in the thread, and I'm pretty sure that there have been some uh, in there uh, of the signs that say things like "Union workers won the Super Bowl." Um, it, it's it's not wholly removed from American sports, but right. uh, I just think that in general. Um, American sports are very much capitalist enterprises. Um, soccer clubs in Europe are, they, they began anyway, not to say that they're not, they definitely are. Um, but they have roots as like community driven clubs. They often have, um, other sports that are attached to the same club. You know, St. Pauli, um, has indoor soccer. They have basketball teams, um, the community involvement is significantly higher in the running of the clubs. In Germany, um, they actually have a rule that says the fans have to always own a majority share of a club. Uh, a specific, cor- uh, yeah, a specific corporate entity is not a, is not allowed to own uh, the majority share of a club unless they've had a m- minority stake for 20 years or more, and they've proven themselves to the fans <laughs> that they're not just not just interested in the money. Um, Holy cat! That's all. That's I, I'm going to call that socialism, Frank. Yeah, it, it, I mean, <laughs> it's <laughs> German football has some pretty interesting uh, rules and regulations about 
who can own what and why. Um, but they also have one of the strongest and best supported leagues in all of Europe um, with some of the best fans. So I think it says a lot for that way of running things versus our kind of uh, hyper-capitalist approach to sports. Well, you know, it's, you mentioned the hyper-capitalist approach to sports, and it's sort of a, a commodity, like it's, a, it's an entertainment industry. So I'm not at all surprised to find that there are political ties based around unions. You know, mm-hmm. unions traditionally stick together. But I have a hard time picturing uh, what you mentioned was the case with the St. Pauli team in, in sure. Hamburg, where they where they created this cause around xenophobia. You, you know, I cannot imagine that in in like a U.S. sport. That just seems that that seems unique to the way that that it it takes place. Uh, what you're explaining with soccer. Sure. Well, I mean, we have we have a very different political landscape here in general. I think yeah. that if uh, you know, on a, a more microcosmic level our punk rock community did have a problem with uh, Nazis and racism in the, in the eighties. And you did see people stepping up and you did see like the rise of anti-racist politics in that, in those communities to um, kind of take back that scene from um, xenophobic and racist people who were trying to take it over. Um, It would be a rare and different thing to see that happen on a level big enough to affect any of our major sports teams though. Right. Um, Right. I, I think that if it did, I would like to think, though, that uh, people would get behind, you know, the right causes. But I, I don't think that we'll ever be in a situation where that'll happen. <laughs> I, I love the idea of, of say, like the uh, Oakland Raiders coming out in favor of gay marriage or something. Like yeah, that would, that would be fantastic. <laughs> you know, I'd love to see uh, a few more rainbow colors in the middle of all that black and silver. <laughs> The Pittsburgh Steelers supporting the uh, withdrawal from Iraq, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's never going to happen. Military <laughs> advertising is such a significant part of our sports income. So uh, now, so so I have two questions for you uh, that I'm just going to throw out in conjunction because I, I suspect the answers might be similar. Uh, were you into punk rock, and uh, also, why are you so into? a German soccer team? <laughs> um, well, they are connected. Uh, St. Pauli, because of the connection with punk rock, has always been like a known quantity to me, and I grew up listening to punk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I've always known about uh, St. Pauli as a result. I only in the last two years or so have gotten really into following European football. St. Pauli is one of the two teams that I follow very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, the other team is a, a club in Scotland, um, Glasgow called Celtic. Are they? By the way, so is there a different scene with? Because I think of English football as being associated with hooligans, mm-hmm. uh, and there's there's, I, I think historically, I don't know if it's still the case, like a lot of xenophobia and racism in that situation. Is there a different sort of political tenor to English football? There's there's there is a different political tenor, but there's and there's still plenty of racism in uh, English football and football even in other parts of Europe. Um, there's still plenty of that everywhere. There's still plenty of hooliganism everywhere. Uh, and um, but there are there are different cultures. Um, in Scotland, for example, the team that I follow, Celtic, uh, they have roots as a club founded by and supported by Irish immigrants who fled to Scotland during the famine. And uh, as a result, their politics run kind of very strongly up against um, a lot of the more unionist politics and loyalist politics in Scotland. Um, there's still a lot of anti-Irish racism in Scotland, and that comes up frequently. Um, 
it's it's a point of contention uh, for Celtic and Celtic supporters quite often. Yeah, Frank, this makes me far more excited about sports than anything I hear about, <laughs> like like football or basketball or the NBA or baseball in the, in the U.S. It uh, definitely adds another dimension to supporting a club and uh, being involved and invested in it. And you know, it's a big part of why I I get so interested. Right, right. Uh, now, now on the punk rock scene, if I may ask, how old are you? I am 29. Okay, so when you say you grew up with punk, because I grew up listening to punk too, I was totally into punk, but <laughs> I, I suspect we're kind of from different generations there. Like when you say you listen to punk, you're talking about what, like uh, the police or? <laughs> <laughs> no, not the police. Um, I think uh, the first, the first punk bands that I really got into were the same first punk bands that everybody gets into: the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and. Um, it, it, it that that's included with a lot of bands that were also making music at the time that I was getting into it um <clears throat> rancid and other bay area bands like that mm-hmm. uh I've always been really attached to bay area punk rock and it's one of the things that drew me here from Wisconsin that you don't really get a whole lot of great music in Wisconsin okay so this is you growing up in Wisconsin being because yeah. I, I, I was in a similar boat where I grew up in Arkansas mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and there's not a lot of there's not much punk culture there yeah uh, so because uh, the, the ones that actually grabbed me and I'm actually surprised that uh at least one of them is still around but uh, like like the Butthole Surfers way back when. I think they were from Austin. Uh, yep. I remember when nobody knew who they were, and they're like a big deal now. Uh, and certainly like the Dead Kennedys. Uh, I remember the Circle Jerks. What Are the yep. Circle Jerks still around? Yeah, the Circle Jerks. Circle Jerks, I don't know if they're active right now, um, but they're still around. You know, Bad Religion is still around. Lots of right. bands from that era. Um, and Southern California even are still around and making music. I actually just read um, Greg Graffin, the singer of Bad Religion's autobiography. Oh. It's pretty interesting. Well, wow, what was that like? Um, it's it's pretty good. It's a book. He's a a biology professor at UCLA. <laughs> no, you made that up. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. <laughs> that uh, is awesome. <laughs> his book is called Anarchy Evolution, and it's subtitled Faith, Science, and Bad Religion in a World Without God. And... <laughs> It's it's simultaneously a story about his growing up in L.A. punk rock and how Bad Religion became a band, and also kind of like a examination of evolution as a concept and where science is at with evolution right now and faithlessness. So you know, I'm not I'm not at all surprised to hear that because a lot of that early punk stuff there there was some really I mean a lot of it was just dudes yelling, but there was some really smart stuff going on there. So I'm not surprised to hear that that guy from Bad Religion goes on to write a book like that. That's yeah. awesome. It's uh, a, it's a pretty good read. I, I it's a little slow, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I I love hearing. Uh, I think we we have a radio station out here that Henry Rollins shows up on, like once a week and just plays records. And I just love hearing that guy talk. I mean, I I don't really know what he's doing with himself these days, but mm. uh, Henry Rollins was kind of like uh, maybe a Jim Morrison for me. I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> I was actually when I first moved to Los Angeles, uh, I will never forget going to a Ralph's or supermarket here. And uh, rolling a cart a cart full of groceries up to the aisle, and then seeing some dude out of the corner of my eye with a some bananas and a loaf of bread walk up behind me, and say, "No, you you can go in front of me," because I had a whole bunch of stuff. And the guy walks in front of me, and he's standing there, and I see on the back of his neck that 
black flag tattoo thing. And it was Henry Rollins. <laughs> he was just so polite and he thanked me and he was so unassuming and quiet. And, and just, uh, it kind of blew my mind. And I wished I'd said something to him like, you're awesome, man. <laughs> you know, you made you made my childhood in Arkansas more tolerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't. So. Oh, well, it's a missed punk rock opportunity. There. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, are you still into that kind of music? Uh, I am. I in my uh, as like I moved into my twenties, I got more into um, hardcore, which is kind of like a slower. It's 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 often made fun of as like slow metal uh, or. <laughs> Um, and then from there I kind of started listening to metal and now I, I pretty much only listen to metal, uh, Morrissey and Irish folk music. (laughs) I would love to hear your iPod on shuffle. It's it's terrible on shuffle. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I actually, cause I have, I have a bunch of like new stuff I listen to that's like, like folky, like a woman named Nina Nastasia and Elliot Smith. And then I've got a bunch of the punk I used to listen to. And I even have a bunch of opera uh, on, on my iPod. That's <laughs> opera so, mine as well. Yeah, so weird things happen on Shuffle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Greg Graffin, uh, again, he also mm-hmm. recorded a folk album a couple of years ago called Cold as Clay. And it's very good. Um, really solid American folk music. Cool, good. And and you like you recommend that? Yeah, I recommend that. I think you I think you might enjoy it. Okay, you're on the record for recommending yeah. that. Uh, let's talk before we transition to games. Uh, let's talk movies. You're right. you're as big a movie nerd as me. I am. You said your favorite movie from the last ten years is Date Night. Is that correct? <laughs> no. That, oh, only from the last five years? No, that is definitely not correct. Um, <laughs> you did confess, however, to watching Date Night. I did. I did watch Date Night. I was not responsible for the rental of Date Night through Netflix, but I <laughs> did was, sit through it. So it was foisted upon you and you endured it. I did. Now, uh, is there anything that salvaged it? Because I watch plenty of horrible movies, Frank, but I always <laughs> find oh, – I say always – almost always find some sort of a something – uh, that made it worth the experience. Was there anything in Date Night that you liked and you thought was worth the experience? Sure. I mean, it had it had its moments. The whole first scene with Mark Wahlberg is really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Tina Fey is pretty hilarious. Um, I think that it's, it's hard to sell kind of like a weird adventure romantic comedy when, like, your two leads have negative chemistry with one another um see i kind of i liked their like little when they weren't trying to be wacky i kind of liked their normal moments together you didn't you didn't feel that worked no the normal stuff was okay um but most of the time that wasn't the case yeah when they're both trying to be funny it mm -hmm. sort of it gets a little weird and awkward and uncomfortable yeah it was it was okay it's not something that i was like angry over watching or anything like that but i certainly wouldn't watch it again now, uh, here's my – you're right about Mark Wahlberg, by the way. I forgot about that. I wished he would do more uh, comedies that weren't that thing with Will Ferrell where they're cops. I forgot what that was. Yeah, that I was don't, awful. Yeah, um, the Other Guys, is that it? Yeah, yeah, very good. Very, ah, look at you. I saw that too. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> the best thing about The Other Guys is how quickly uh, Dwayne Johnson and Samuel L. Jackson exited the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They were like, we didn't know what we are signing up for, so we're going to have our characters die now. <laughs> Uh, so here's what I loved about Date Night. Do you know who William Fichtner is? I don't. 
He is the crime boss in Date Night who they have to do the sexy dance in front of. Oh, okay. Uh, he's a character actor, like a high yeah. forehead, sort of a handsome face. Sure. Uh, I love that guy. And he just gave the performance of a lifetime <laughs> in a middling movie called Drive Angry 3D. Okay. Which I don't necessarily recommend, but William Fickner, that dude, is hilarious, and he steals that movie. I love that guy. He was a, uh, he was, a, I think, the space shuttle pilot in Armageddon, which is another guilty pleasure of mine. And he's been around forever in a movie called, was it Go? Well, there's a, a movie, I think, where uh, he plays a... What, what seems to be like a sexual predator, and he's really weird, and he's hitting on these young guys, but it turns out he's just like trying to wrap, get them involved in a multi-level marketing scheme, and there's a funny reveal about that. But, hmm. but anyway, so I liked seeing William Fickner apparently being blown away by their stupid sexy dance at the end of Date Night. That was my redeeming moment. For, yeah, he was, he was good in that. I, I, I backed that up. He was, uh, he's, he's always good. He always has like a good impact in whatever yeah. he's in. Yeah. So that so there you go. So so rent when it comes out on Netflix. I wouldn't advise a theater necessarily, but, but rent drive angry if you like William. Right. Uh, you you recently got the Blu-rays for uh, Winter's Bone and In Bruges. Yes, I did. So yeah. both of those you liked enough to own. Yes, uh, I I think that Winter's Bone is one of the best movies I've seen in a really long time. Um, I think that In Bruges is one of the best written films I've seen in a very long time. Um, so I, those are, those are two movies that I'll be rewatching plenty now when of. You, when you say best written, it, it almost sounds like that's a, a, a bit of a caveat about the directing or the acting. No, or why do you not at all. That? It's just, it's just that I think that the writing in it is so strong that it's yeah. worth, it's worth it on its own. Um, right. it's a, it's an extremely well acted movie and it's well directed. There's, there's almost nothing wrong with it, but, uh, at the same time, like the writing is just so good that it's it's hard to ign- ignore that. Um, it's it's very economical. There's nothing written for In Bruges that isn't well utilized. I, I love that, don't you? Like when you see a movie and you realize that every every word, like every line, it's like literature. Like there's a reason for everything, and it all fits together. Absolutely, uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, you know. There, there's always kind of a a negative stigma attached to plays as movies. I know. <laughs> um, you know, movies like uh, 44-inch Chest, um, which is very much a play as a movie. Yeah. Um, but I also really like 44-inch Chest. Um, and In Bruges, you know, written by a playwright, uh, is is pretty much a play as a movie. There's, there are, there is motion in it. There's, there's plenty of motion in it that makes it cinematic, but it's still written like a play, but it's, it's just so strong. Well, I think the thing that in Bruges has going for it, that 44 inch chest may not have going for it is that, and I love 44 inch chest. Like, I don't think it's a failing that it's like a play. So I'm with you there, but mm-hmm. in Bruges takes such great advantage of, of its setting of the city. The fact mm-hmm. that it's named in Bruges, like that couldn't be a play, because it's so crucial that that Colin Farrell and uh, and Brendan Gleeson are actually like moving around Bruges. Sure. Uh, and that that set piece at the end, I don't want to give anything away, but that that tower, like the actual city, is such an important part uh, of how intricate it is and how carefully it's constructed. Yeah, uh, it's it's a very anybody who hasn't seen it is doing themselves a, a great disservice. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, yeah, like 44 inch chest. I can see some people not liking it, but there's there's almost no one to whom I wouldn't say you should see in Bruges. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 44 inch chest has a much uh, narrower appeal, um, but none, no less good for it. 
And now you also mentioned you would recently have had you only recently seen Sexy Beast? Yeah, for some reason it slipped past me um, all that time. And after watching Forty Four Inch Chest, I realized that I, I, I it went back into my my thinking, and I, I realized that I had to see it. Um, and man, I was I was I was kicking myself that I hadn't seen it earlier. I, Sexy Beast is great. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Kingsley, uh, he's he's pretty hit or miss for me. Um, <laughs> Let but, me tell you, Kingsley is all over the map. I mean, hit or yeah. miss is almost a nice way to put it. <laughs> Kingsley, what is that? I don't know what that guy's. I I, th- I know what that guy's thinking is. I'll take anything. Some of yeah. them are going to be awesome. The ones that are terrible, who cares? No one will see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is not a very discerning actor. Yeah, <laughs> he's great in Sexy Beast. Now, and I'll I'll see anything with Ian McShane in it. It I don't I don't care what it is. I'll watch yeah. anything. Really, Frank Austin? Really? Mm-hmm. So that means like, you will see this upcoming Pirates of the Caribbean movie? Oh, absolutely. What? I, I, <laughs> that thing looks so... Just, you know what? That that movie looks nondescript. I don't... I, I don't... See, I don't... I, th- I think we talked about this a little bit when you were up here, but I don't watch trailers. Um, I don't either, but I did watch that trailer because I was told it doesn't spoil anything because it looks like there's nothing worth spoiling in the movie. Well... <laughs> I don't care. Seeing him dressed up as a pirate will be enough for me. He, yeah. You know, actually, fair enough, Frank, because he does look really cool in the trailer. So if yeah. I hadn't seen, yeah, so I guess you're in for a surprise there. Uh, all right, now, now let me ask you. Uh, and we talked about this briefly beforehand. In Sexy Beast, you know, early on, Ray Winstone is laying it at the pool, talking about how hot it is. Are you, Frank Austin, in worse shape? Or better shape than Ray Winstone. Um, that's tough to say at this point. <laughs> I I am just as sedentary, let's say, <laughs> but I may be in slightly better shape than he is. Now you have an excuse for this, and I, I'm giving you guff because I'll I'll have my own confessions in a minute. But your excuse for this is that you, for I think you said three years, have been dating a chick who is a baker, like she works at a bakery. Yeah, she's and a bit. And you blamed on this poor woman. What's her first name? Her name is Violet. You blamed on Violet your own gain, your 30-pound <laughs> weight gain over the last three years. Is that true or false, Frank Austin? It's at least, it's at least half her responsibility. <laughs> so uh, she, 15 of the pounds are Violet's fault. Yes, easily. <laughs> It's it's impossible it's impossible to live with someone who is continuously baking incredible desserts and not gain a significant amount of weight like there you can there's there's self-control and then there's just like shooting yourself in the foot and if you're not eating every incredible dessert that gets passed in front of you you're doing something wrong what what did she make well lately um she's she started making um a mexican dessert called pan dulce uh, it's very lightly sweetened uh, bread, and uh, she she's been making that for a few months, and it's quickly become one of my favorite things. Uh, and but other than that, she's she's all over the place. Um, she 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 makes any and every kind of dessert imaginable. Pandulce sounds like something awesome for breakfast. It actually is really good for breakfast. It's the kind of thing that it's like a good breakfast pastry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a fan. I. Uh, I like lightly sweetened desserts, but that doesn't stop me from gaining 
more and more weight <laughs> continuously. Now I, I'm giving you guff, but do, like, do you really feel like you've gained a lot of weight and you're out of shape? Or oh, absolutely. Uh, like... I mean, that's not that's not the only reason. It's just the most amusing thing to blame it on. But uh, yeah, I, I in the past few years, I've you know been working out less and less and eating more and more. <laughs> <laughs> this, I, I know how that goes. So I have not, I used to like run fairly often and I, I, I've always sort of tried to be careful about what I eat, but in the last, I don't know, year, six months, I just can't be bothered to, to go running and my diet sort of ends up like going off track. Cause it's really easy for me. Like I, sugar is my big deal. Like if I I, Violet would kill me. You know, the fact that you've only <laughs> gained 30 pounds from from uh, from Violet, I find that admirable because I would easily go for 50 pounds. Yeah, um, it's it's pretty easy to lose yourself in a mountain of dessert. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I've recently been, every now and then I have to do this, and it's not so much for me a weight thing. It's just like I feel like crap when I'm eating junk food. It's sort of like a periodic maintenance thing i have to do like a two-week period where i don't eat any sugar or any carbs it's all just just like meat dairy vegetables not even fruit nothing sweet uh partly for to rejigger my palate so i'm i'm about three days away from the two-week point of like serious austerity dieting <laughs> stuff uh and i don't really watch like i don't i don't weigh myself i don't know if i've lost weight or anything but it it's mainly to just stop eating sugar uh sure. which is such a killer for me yeah i mean me too i'm, I'm t i can't um i can't stop eating sugar it's it's very difficult when you live with someone who bakes but i also have a very big sweet tooth my girlfriend and i are we're both vegan and uh we are really really into food like mm -hmm. food is pretty much the focus of our lives so we already have to watch what we eat at least <laughs> to some degree um but yeah we well i want eating, you to have eating is everything eating is <laughs> everything into us so I, I want you to have some extra pan dulce for me i will well, and next time you're up here, I'll make sure she. Uh, makes no, <laughs> make oh. sure she. No, if I'm up there. I, oh God, I'm gonna be the rude guy who's like, you know, you made this awesome pie, but I can't have sugar. Okay, whatever. And then, <laughs> and then that's it. I'm off the wagon for. Yeah. Weeks. <laughs> but that's the thing, though. When you're when you're eating poorly, you have to enable other people around you who are eating healthier. You have to drag them down to your level. Sure, it's like heroin. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, you, you live up there in Oakland, and you work at a bike shop. So I, I presume you also must ride bikes like 10 miles a day. No, yeah. not at all. Because yeah, it's just um, a job for you now, right? Yeah, I mean, when I first moved here, um, I, I've been... I had been using a bike as my only method of transportation for years. Um, now, wait a minute. Is that How did that happen in Wisconsin? Because you can't ride bikes in Wisconsin, can you? Because the whole thing freezes over, so you would have to put snow tires on your bike. No, you can still ride. It's 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 harder, and, you know, nobody in their right mind does it. But um, it's also it can also be strangely rewarding to ride in really crappy conditions and, you know, be the only person out on the road and, you know, have icicles forming in your beard and <laughs> what else. But yeah. I actually, I remember that well. I, I did, I guess, three years in Cambridge with nothing but a bicycle to get around. And I was a few miles from campus. And I, I remember that like bundling up to get out into the snow. And uh, there was something kind of like dramatic and maybe survival oriented about it yeah. yeah yeah layers are the key once you figure that out you're fine <laughs> exactly now now what you probably have to deal with uh and i didn't really have this in, in cambridge or boston uh they got a bunch of hills out there yeah 
Yeah, and uh, the bike shop that I work at is actually up in the middle of them, and I don't live up there. So um, riding to work, it's, <laughs> difficult, it's difficult enough, you know, to wake up and want to ride your bike into work. You get on your bike, and you, the last place that you ever want to go is into a bike shop. <laughs> um, but to add in, you know, all the extra effort that it would take to get up the hills out here, it's just, it's not happening. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, you get burned out on bikes after a while. And I've recently started to ride my bike more often, um, just for normal getting around town. I kind of fell into the habit of driving a car everywhere um, in the last couple of years, but I've been riding more lately. Um, now, I would imagine you must have a, a, a pretty bitchin' bike, yeah? Uh, not right now. Um, okay. I like to keep it really simple. I actually really don't like working on bikes all that much. So I like to keep my bike simple. I like to ride, you know, minimal drivetrains, single speed or fixed gear bikes. Um, I have one bike that I actually uh, made for myself. I welded myself. I took a frame building class and welded a custom frame for myself a couple years ago. Um, but I rarely ride it. Uh, I, I just have like a around town bike that I ride more often and it's okay. It's nothing special. Now, what, what is your job like at your bike shop? You mentioned it's a small shop. Mm -hmm. Uh, is it mainly repairs? Is it a small customer base and talking to them about high end bikes? Uh, what, what kind of work do you do? What's your shop like? Our shop sells a lot of hybrids these days. Like, you know, we get a lot of people who don't, want to spend a lot of money on bikes ever since you know late 2008 that's been the thing nobody wants to spend any money on bikes mm -hmm. um i'm the buyer so i do all the ordering and like uh inventory work so it's a lot of computer work and less talking to customers but um we still have like a core group of really dedicated customers that i get to interact with and that's one of the better things about my job is that i don't really have to do so much of the day-to-day -day retail work i can spend more time like working with people who have been with us for years on what they want and getting it for them now you say you don't like working on bikes uh is that like i can't help but because i have a bike and I, I can do some minor stuff on it but i would think somebody at, at the higher end who can really get in and tinker with a bike it almost might be like like keeping it like fixing a computer or something or, or working on cars like it must have its own kind of reward to it sure it does um but when you work in a shop uh, it very, very rarely do you get to have that kind of experience. Most of the time you get people who are bringing in, you know, mountain bikes that they left outside for like the last four years <laughs> and like just miserable, miserable bikes that are not fun to fix, you know, um, every, every once in a while, you know, once a day or every other day, you'll get something that's really nice, but that's just like, uh, a small glimmer of hope in an otherwise pretty dreary day of fixing terrible bikes. Oh, and, and in the Bay Area, especially around Labor Day, it's Burning Man bikes <laughs> all the time. What it, now, is that just people who have, like, abused some crappy bike out in the desert for several yeah, days? Yeah, I end? mean, people don't – people people want bikes when they're out at Burning Man because it's – I don't, I don't know. I've never been to Burning Man. I can't imagine why you'd ever want to ride a bike in the playa <laughs> and in the middle of the desert. But people do, and so they bring them to bike shops, like, completely baffled as to why everything on their bike is corroded and falling apart. But it's a big yeah, part of, you know, why you end up hating bikes after you work in a bike shop is because people just don't treat them very well. Uh, I can't help but think that it, the computer equivalent might be someone bringing in their old uh, like Windows 3.0, 486, and saying, I need to be able to play World of Warcraft on this. 
It's it's pretty bad. <laughs> it can't. I mean, World of Warcraft runs on pretty much anything. So. Not at 486. Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe it would. Yeah. yeah. You never know. How would you know that, by the way? Do you play World of Warcraft? No, I, I've played it in the past. I play. I, I give most of the expansions a try eventually, but it never really grabs my attention. MMOs are just not for me. Well, let's transition into games. What right. uh, What is your your general? Before we talk about your your topic of choice. Uh, what are you mucking around with these days? Um, well, I just got finished with Dragon Age 2. Um, finished I, it? Like you got to the end? Yeah, yeah huh? I beat it a couple days ago. Um, let me, let probably, me post you the question that I have for other folks. What, right. did, what did you feel about the fact that it never really left Kirkwall? Were you okay with that focused setting? Uh, I'm okay with it in theory, but I'm not okay with it in practice. I think in practice, Kirkwall is like the worst Potemkin village in gaming history. <laughs> <laughs> that's a quote for the ages Frank. That's nice <laughs> yeah it's in i i don't mind the idea of a role-playing game taking place entirely within a city um it, you know i think that you could really strongly develop a setting uh and in certain ways dragon age 2 accomplishes that but the level of interactivity with the city of kirkwall is so minimal and so just cardboard and bland that mm. it never it never takes advantage you know the biggest the biggest problem with dragon age 2 is that it never really takes advantage of the ways that it's interesting um and that to me is the the capital offense uh kirkwall is an underdeveloped you know cardboard cut out of a city i mean there's an apples and oranges thing going on here but i can't help but think that the guys at bioware if they were to appreciate what the guys at Ubisoft can do with the Assassin's Creed games as far as like bringing a city to life, and if they were to build an RPG into that kind of technology, I mean, that I, I just I, Kirkwall means nothing to me once I have seen uh, uh, Vienna and, and Rome, and the, the, yeah, uh, it just makes it so hard for me to 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 not see how contrived and static and, and as you say, non interactive that all is. And and when you when you think about it, it's not like you know, you can go inside of a lot of the buildings in the Assassin's Creed games either. It's just that the way that the player interacts with the city in those games is so vital to the yeah. way it's played. And in Kirkwall, you know, you mostly interact with it as a loading screen and like <laughs> jumping between areas. And God, yeah. Ouch. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not good. Okay. Were you a dude or a chick? Uh, I played a dude the first time through. I always play a female. Uh, in Bioware games, uh, usually for my second game, though. So will you play Dragon Age 2 a second time? I don't know. <laughs> um, wow. I, I played Origins four times through. <laughs> um, I'm not quite to, like, Deathlock levels of hours, but I, I'm pretty close. I think if I were to look at my Steam hour count, it would be upwards of 170. Um, and... I like it. I don't think I don't think that Origins is like the be all end all of computer role playing games, but uh, I like it enough to play it that many times. Uh -huh, sure. um, I don't. I'm not sure with Dragon Age Two. I think I need to. I definitely need to walk away from it for a while and play something else before I jump into it again. Um, I just need some some time somewhere else i feel i feel frank like you're breaking up with dragon age 2 i definitely am breaking up with dragon <laughs> age 2 i if i could break up with dragon age 2 in a more visible manner to, you know, i would but i think i just need to walk away and let it sit on my desktop unloved for a while 
Uh, all right. So what's next then? What, what now that uh, now that you're over that, uh, what what are you looking forward to jumping into? Um, I'll probably play some Shogun too. Um, I've never been a big Total War fan, but uh, I really liked Shogun, and I've always meant to invest more in one of the more modern games. So uh, I bought that, and I'll give that a try next probably. Let me just say. You, I think you picked the right one. Man, yeah. am I am I digging Shogun too? Awesome. And I, I was I was real I've been real critical of some of their past games, but I think they did exactly what they needed to do in Shogun Two to sort of bring guys like me back into the fold, as well as bring like new players, I, I presume like you, in, into what they're doing. There's so much cool stuff in that game. Great. I, I you know I started the tutorial last night when it was kind of late and I didn't make it all the way through because I was just so tired. But um, so far. I think I th- my inclination is to agree with you. I think that I'm going to enjoy it a lot. I, uh, I the last Total War that I really tried to put anything into was Medieval 2, and it just didn't click for me. But um, the setting is more interesting to me in Shogun, and I, I have a good feeling about where it's going. Good. Yeah, they're so good with the setting, and and I don't know if you've ever played. Like, I don't know if you're much of a multiplayer RTS dude. Um, but even if you aren't, they've done a great job making that welcoming and easy and gradual. Well, like it's, it's not just like throwing you into the deep end, go, oh, you got your ass kicked by some guy who knows the game much better than you. Uh, no, I have been in the past, but um, competitive RTS and I have kind of gone our separate ways over the years. Well, I think I I think you'll dig what they're doing there with their. That's good. Uh, we I think in general we have pretty similar tastes when it comes to strategy games. So I'm glad to hear you say that it's it's good. Uh, and what anything else grabbing you lately? Um, I'm really looking forward to the next section eight. Uh, I God, I wish they'd announced the release date already. Yeah, they need up? to get on that because otherwise they're just going to get stuck in between releases. Like they either need to beat Brink to the table or just wait yeah um but yeah i'm really looking forward to that um i don't i'm also really looking forward to brink i think brink has a lot of potential um but everything else i everything else that's kind of on the radar i have cautious optimism for i'm cautiously optimistic about deus ex um yeah nothing is really making me pay much attention to it right now battlefield is the same way i'm cautiously optimistic that i'll enjoy it but is that a recent when is battlefield due out is battlefield it? 3 i don't i don't know when it's actually due out but okay. uh you know we're starting to see more trailers and media for it right now uh so you mentioned the, the next deus ex obviously uh that will be i think a an indication for a lot of folks as to what to expect from this recently announced thief 4 oh i hope not <laughs> why do you say that what <laughs> Um, well, I don't, I, I have to disclaimer this because I'm not one of the people who thinks that like the inclusion of third person automatically means like the death of the spirit of Deus Ex or anything like that. <laughs> but I do not want one button takedowns or anything along those lines. In a thief <laughs> game. Like I just, yeah, Thief is different than Deus Ex. The two, the two are very closely related, but they are also very, very different games. All right, well, let, well, let's do this. Let's do this. So, so you mentioned uh, you actually. I know nothing about Thief Four. You were the one who actually told me that that there's this thread about the announcement of the announcement, which was just that they're announcing it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Ubisoft Montreal, who's working on Deus Ex: Human Evolution, is now doing a Thief Four. You mm-hmm. are here to talk about Thief, like that was the game you wanted to to pick to talk about. Uh, 
what is it about uh, maybe we should open this way what are the unique selling points of the original thief that you're worried they may not appreciate well um, thief is a game where it really relies on the player to be um, immersed in the character um, and I think that you know the argument about third person and Deus Ex and Thief goes back actually to the um, release of Deadly Shadows, the third Thief game, when uh, it was decided to put a third person perspective in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a pretty strong argument that third person interferes with the game in a fundamental way. Um, leaning around corners and you know this is like another another thing that i want to disclaimer because i'm not one of those people who needs to have lean in every game or wants to like harp on about how lean is going to ruin blah blah blah. but uh leaning around corners and thief is to take it as an example is like a calculated risk um when you're trying not to be seen the idea of leaning around a corner to see around it is is you're you're putting yourself at risk and with a third person camera perspective you can actually accomplish the same thing without ever worrying about breaking stealth um and i you know i don't care about deus ex in that regard i think that the deus ex stealth approach is completely different than the thief stealth approach um and you know they they can feel free to put uh, a third-person perspective in a Deus Ex game, I think it might actually strengthen the game in a lot of ways, um, and it'll make it more appealing to people who like third-person perspectives in games. But um, I think that in Thief, I really just don't want to see anything like that happen. <laughs> you know, you know that uh, you've actually, I think, just sold me, Frank, because when you're talking about that whole idea of leaning around the corner and the risk involved with breaking stealth versus the reward of getting additional situational awareness about what's around that corner makes me think of an overarching design of the original Thief, where there's a whole risk-reward thing where you can either just go for the one doodad or your, 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 your one objective, or you can like try to work your way around the level getting extra treasure. Like mm-hmm. There's a lot of optional player choices for risk-reward yeah. on a macro level, and you, you just now sold me on leaning – and and specifically the importance of being in first person as risk reward on a micro level. Yeah, it's very. I mean, it's like you said, it's fundamental to the design of the game as a whole, and uh, I think it's definitely reflective of that risk reward philosophy in Thief. Um, now, did, was was Deadly Shadows like? Were you a an anti Deadly Shadows guy? Like, did you feel that that betrayed some of the intent of the original Thief games? I do, and I don't. Um, I think that. Deadly Shadows is a really interesting talking point for a lot of reasons, um, and that's only one of them. But uh, yeah, I did feel that the third-person perspective was a mistake. I think that while letting people identify with like the visual image of Garrett is interesting, um, uh, I do think that just the simple fact that you could cheat perspective to... Um, attain things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do uh, without putting yourself in, in harm's way was a big problem. Um, and uh, I don't think that Deadly Shadows was like fundamentally broken as a result, but it was disappointing for me um, to see that as an inclusion. Because even though I was strongly in favor of there only being a first-person perspective in that game, and I... I uh, wanted not to use the third-person perspective. I definitely found myself doing it. 
Um, well, it's clearly designed for it. I mean, yeah. if you'd been forced in a first-person perspective in Deadly Shadows, you're putting yourself... You're basically breaking the tuning of a game, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so talk to me about your experience with The First Thief. Uh, <laughs> how did you find it? You know, you must have been, like, six when you played it? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it came out in 1998, so I was, I was 16 or okay. 17 at the time. Um, the... The way I discovered Thief was um, kind of interesting, actually. I, I've always liked Thief characters in role-playing games, and this goes back to like my childhood playing Final Fantasy VI and thinking that Locke Cole was like such an interesting and awesome character. Um, Who? Locke from Final Fantasy VI. Good lord! Come on, Tom. come on. <laughs> I'm sorry, Frank. I don't do JRPGs. I don't anymore either. But it was a different. It was a different thing. JRPGs were how I was introduced to role-playing games, and I don't. I don't look back on them with anything but fondness. So the characters, the thief in Final Fantasy is named Locke. Yes, Locke. as in things that you pick. Uh, yes. All right. Very, very clever. Uh, <laughs> square. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Uh, all right. So you, you, you're a, you're a fan of like rogues and thieves. So mm-hmm. you're a 16 year old kid, and a game comes out called Thief. Thief. Yeah. Right. And uh, the demo actually predated the release, uh, and a friend of mine uh, downloaded it at his house, and we played it on his computer. And between the two of us, we probably played that Thief demo at least a hundred times. Um, <laughs> It's it was it was the entire first level of the game, and it served as such a great introduction to like the game itself, the world, the character, uh, everything about Thief is really nicely put into that first level. Um, there's so many ways you can do that level, and so many fun like optional little things you can do with it. That uh, yeah, like I said, we played it we played it to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, the demo for Thief was fantastic. And uh, it sold so me. It sold you on the game. Uh, you pick up the game. I presume, obviously, you're not disappointed because, if I recall correctly, every bit of Thief was as good as that first level. Like absolutely. Uh, um, there, you know, there are things that you can weigh against Thief that it had like a reliance on like weird monster types too much, and that there wasn't enough like thieving going on in the later parts of the game. But uh, yeah, I mean. Thief, Thief is in no way disappointing, and in a lot of ways, much more interesting than they let on in the demo. Now, uh, the how do you feel about so it, it? First of all, it introduces this concept of, of stealth in in a game. Mm-hmm. Like I think there'd been a little bit of that before with like the Metal Gear Solid games, maybe. Yes. But but this was the first time that that it, it was like almost solely you could you could finish a Thief level without getting into a fight. And ideally, yep. it kind of wanted you to to push that, to challenge yourself to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, had, uh, do you remember what it was like like discovering that? Like, Had you played Metal Gear? Uh, I had played Metal Gear. Um, the, the stealth in Metal Gear is also fairly different from Thief-style stealth. Um, you know, Thief does a really good job of integrating stealth into like the world at large. Um, I think the worst thing that you could say about it is that the light meter is a little gamey. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, a constant display of how well hidden you are is a little whatever. But uh, in general, you know, I, I don't remember much of the Metal Gear Solid games before Thief was released. But I don't think that, you know, Metal Gear Solid used light to determine how well hidden you were the way right. Thief did. Um, or gave you access to things like putting the lights out 
to be more hidden in certain areas of the map. Um, I think that stealth was a lot more fundamental of the design in Thief than it ever was in Metal Gear. And, you know, to, to actually answer your question, I remember discovering Thief and being so happy with that, um, feeling like here was a game that really nailed the concept of stealth and what a character who is a professional thief and, like, you know dedicated to his craft would be doing in those situations. Um, like you mentioned the notion that you could get through a thief level without fighting anyone. And on, uh, I think it's worth noting that on higher difficulty levels, you actually weren't allowed to kill anyone. Um, one of the great things about thief is the difficulty levels and, uh, forcing the player at higher difficulty levels to play even stealthier as opposed to just like, you know, upping the hit points of guards or upping their detection radiuses or something like that is, is a great, great thematic difficulty. And it, it also the whole way the the level design really supported that in that it didn't expect you, you know, it wasn't corridors that you're, you, okay, sneak, it wasn't like splinter cell, like mm-hmm. sneak down this corridor, loading screen, sneak down the next corridor. Right. It, it was a great big old like castle, an open world, and the, the dudes had their different routines, and it rewarded that kind of exploration and, and poking at different approaches. And, uh, you, you know, you mentioned putting out lights, like the, the fundamental way you interacted with the level was, was dynamic. You know, mm-hmm. you could change the level design in a way. I, I had the good fortune maybe five years ago, of going to a GDC talk. Oh, and I wish I could remember the dude's name. It wasn't Austin Grossman. It was one of the developers of the original Thief, but he was talking about how they would design the levels in Thief around like light sources and where you place them and, and where you make the shadows. And, and that was such a, like, a cool new approach back then. Uh, you know, like put, you mentioned putting out torches. Like who'd have thought that that would determine how you interact with a level? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's thief level design is unlike anything else, and that's only one of the ways you know uh, that that's the case. Designing around lighting, um, I I have yet to see another game that really captures the feel of thief level design since Thief Two. Um, Deadly Shadows really really hurt in that way. Um, that was. That was to me the most disappointing element of the third game was the. No, when, when you say hurt, you mean the the level design, the way. Yeah, that... abs- I okay. mean, um, Deadly Shadows. Ha- it has to be said, despite how this is yet another disclaimer to argument. It has to be said that consoles really did ruin Deadly Shadows. <laughs> um, this this was when you could talk about the consolification of a game, and it actually mattered because. Deadly Shadows took the level design of Thief and it had to shrink it down into these bite-sized segments to make it approachable for the limitations of the Xbox um, and the amount of RAM that the Xbox had. Um, all of a sudden, you weren't you weren't in these like open areas like the first level of Thief, the one that's in the demo, is just this giant manor house that you have to break into and steal a scepter and then get back out. Um, Deadly Shadows has levels that are like that, but they're broken down by all these different loading screens. And in general, it's a much more claustrophobic experience. Um, and yeah, yeah, you have to lay the blame for that squarely at the foot of console hardware limitations. Right. Uh, now let, let's talk about some of the tools of how you interact. Like you mentioned that the the light gym felt a little gamey, and mm-hmm. I, I can I can I can understand that. That makes sense. But uh, d- 
it wasn't it just another one of the tools just like moss arrows or water arrows or whatever you call the rope arrows like like uh isn't that a necessary evil just like the different arrows and the other tools you use to interact with the level it is um it's a little different because it's not like something that you can use yourself uh in like multiple ways it's more just like a a constant reminder of how hidden you are Mm -hmm. um and it's useful. It's definitely useful. I, I can't see the game working without it. But, like, you know, you bring up all these other examples of, like, moss, water, fire arrows, rope arrows, um, flash bombs, all these other things that almost all had multiple uses in the game. Um, mm-hmm. Water arrows, for instance, you could put out a light with them. But if you were playing on one of the lower difficulty levels and you did get in a fight with a guard and you killed a guard, um, you also could use a water arrow to wash the blood stain that he left. <laughs> um, and otherwise, other guards would notice the blood stain and they would be on like a heightened state of alert. Um, rope arrows, rope arrows were very limited in their use. You know, you shoot them into something wooden and they throw a rope down. But the way that they allowed the player to interact with the level and like create their own paths through the level was very unlimited. Um, you know, limited only by the architecture of the level itself. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, moss arrows, well, they're moss arrows. They, they only do the one thing. They're, they're pretty silly, an arrow that shoots a patch of moss onto the ground to make your footsteps quiet. But they're also, you know, fictionally appropriate, let's say. Now, I don't, I don't recall, but, uh, like, I'm playing... Uh, when, when you play stealth games these days, it tends to give you some kind of, like, overhead radar where you can see the guards moving and you get a little cone for their awareness uh, area. Was there anything like that in, in Thief? Or was no, it all... No radar. Everything, like it's- everything was in the player's head. That's one of the things that makes it so good and makes the experience so uh, immersive is that, you know, they they had a very strong reliance on positional audio, um, to determine where guards were walking, uh, what direction they were in, and whether or not they were coming towards you or away from you. Um, there's the aforementioned like leaning around corners to see if you uh, to see a guard coming or walking away from you. Um, but uh, in terms of like knowing where guards were going to be and what kind of like you know how alerted they were to your presence, it was all on you. Everything was your responsibility. You know, you, you mentioned that now, and, and you're right. There wasn't, like, an exclamation point over the guard's head when he was alerted. Instead, you would hear him say different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Like, he would start calling out, you know, that he's looking for you or, or, yep. or whatever. Uh, there, there was no cheesy interface display. Or, or no, it, it was all in-world. It was all uh, very, very... Uh, <laughs> Low tech, let's say. Like, <laughs> well, uh, immersive. Let's go ahead it, and use that. Let's yeah, roll I mean, that it, word out. There was it really no, works like, in the player's favor. It really, it really strengthens uh, the game quite a bit. That there's very minimal HUD. Um, you know, you get a small display that pops up when you're scrolling through items, but um, and you have like a, a collection of shields, like little white shields with a red cross in them that displays your health, and you have the light gem. But other than that, that's that's all you get for an interface. Now, how would you determine, and I don't remember this, what inventory items you could bring along for a mission? Like, was that scripted? Was that was there any metagame where you accumulated that stuff and picked it? Do you remember? There was kind of a metagame in that uh, before every level, you were allowed access to a shop where you could buy items based on the amount of treasure that you had from the previous level. Um, so ah. if, 
if you had so that's that risk reward thing again like that that's the incentive to not just go for the objective but to collect other treasures and stuff because it'll make it easier and that was another thing that the difficulty levels tied into as you got into higher difficulty levels um the game demanded that you uh steal a higher amount of stuff a higher percentage of the loot from the level um so that actually worked in your favor on the higher difficulty levels because you could buy more things but um yeah it, it all comes back to that now, you, you mentioned the, the world of Thief. Tell me a bit about – so you're a 16-year-old kid. You discover this dude named Garrett. Uh, did this have – as far as a world and a fiction and a character, did this have much impact on you as a kid or were you more into the gameplay mechanics? Well, <laughs> I, I would say so. Um, I really enjoy the fiction of Thief. I think the fiction of Thief is exceptional um, and uh, – it's very unique. It's not um, Garrett is kind of a uh, a moral, morally ambiguous <laughs> entity. Uh, his his whole perspective on like what's going on during the games, and I I'm gonna try to like stay away from spoilers as much okay. as I can because even though these games are more than a decade old, there are plenty of people who haven't played them who really, really should. And there's um, some great reveals, too. I mean, I think there are yeah. things that can be spoiled that shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so his his role in the unfolding story of Thief is kind of minimal, almost. He, I mean, he, he, he has a great impact with his actions, but he, you always get the sense that you're just kind of like a bit player in a much larger thing that's play, being played out between these three factions um, in the city. Um, but yes, I, w- I would say that the Thief had kind of a, a, a strong impact on me uh, in my formative years. As a 16-year-old, did you ever cosplay as Garrett? No, but I did. I will confess this. <laughs> okay. Uh, I did, for a significant portion of my young adulthood, make a living shoplifting. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're now blaming Looking Glass, just like you blamed Violet for your 30-pound weight gain. Nice. No, I, 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 w- I won't blame them, but I will say that uh, I learned plenty. <laughs> what things did you shoplift, if I may briefly? Uh, Anything. Uh, when you're when you're a shoplifter, when you're a professional shoplifter, you don't really care about what you're stealing. You care about how easy it is to steal and how much you can resell it for. Can I just say I I think that's probably a part of adolescence because I cannot tell you how much money I probably owe. I guess it's the was it Kenner who made Star Wars figures? <laughs> yeah. I I I had as a as an adolescent pre-adolescent actually I was pretty young as a kid. I made it a career out of prying loose the bottom of those bubble packs, letting the <laughs> the figure fall into my hand and surreptitiously putting it in a pocket and walking out of the store. Well, uh, I, you know, one of the things that I had wanted to pry you on during mm-hmm. this conversation was whether or not you had stolen anything and now i know oh, good lord yeah i you know i can be all high and mighty about game piracy and stuff but i <laughs> i shoplifted like the dickens as a kid yeah, yeah. i was terrible yeah uh, i I made, I made a fair amount of money doing it for a few years so and now now i know you were being facetious but come on did did thief i mean did you have a light gem on you when you were shoplifting no no uh, <laughs> It's mostly mostly exaggerated, but I will I will say that like um, since the game is so so immersive, and I hate to keep using that word, but since it is so immersive, it really does put you in the mentality of of Garrett 
in that role. Um, now is I don't because I I have to say I don't I remember some of the cool reveals in the story, but I don't remember a lot about like the specifics of Garrett's commentary or his stance. But but is he kind of a morally gray character? Like other than knocking out or killing guards, of course. <laughs> uh, do, does does he have much of a perspective on what's going on as far as? He- he has a lot of perspective. He's he's mostly just uh, a snarky kind of asshole who's stuck in the middle of like these three powerful uh, religious and one non-religious factions. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he. I mean, he's morally ambiguous, but he also he has plenty to say. And uh, you know, Thief is really awesome in that regard because it, you know, it never really beats you over the head with his perspective. It just kind of offers it up to you in little internal monologue tidbits as you go through the level. Does he talk during the game or is it just during yeah. cutscenes? Yeah. Ah. For, you know, for example, in that first level in uh, Lord Bafford's manor, uh, he, when you finally get to the room where you're trying to steal uh, a scepter, um, you know, it's, it turns out that it's a throne room, and Garrett makes like some snide remark about how pretentious can a person be to have their own throne room. Um, and there's lots of stuff like that it's littered right. throughout the game. Now, tell me a bit about the world. Doesn't Thief have a kind of a cyber, not cyber, but a steampunky kind of angle to it at times, like with the yeah, hammer yeah. faction? Or Thief is very, Thief is very, very steampunk. Um, you know, it's one of the games from that era, along with uh, Arcanum, which I always hear people pronounce as Arcanum. Yeah, some... when you just know, I, I've never heard Arcanum before. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not sure who who's in the right on that one, but you know, it's well, one of the what do games... you call, what, what's the root, like the blank arts, pronounce that word for me. The, I'm sorry, what? The, the, the blank arts, like a, pronounce A-R, arcane. arcane, so Arcanum, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know, I think, th- I think that. I think that, that that like hard sound at the end. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm convinced that it's Arcanum. Okay. <laughs> but either way, it's one of the games from the era, like along with Arcanum, that kind of served to reintroduce like steam, the steampunk setting to like gamers' minds. Um, Final Fantasy VI again was uh, one of the first things that I can think of that actually had like a steampunk aesthetic to it. Ah, I um, did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Uh, but yeah, Thief. Thief and Arcanum were two things that really brought it back around. And, you know, it was steampunk before steampunk was, you know, an embarrassing subculture like it is now. <laughs> uh, now, how did Thief 2 do for you? I love Thief 2. Um, I think that Thief 2 improves on Thief 1 in a lot of ways. I think that the story is excellent. Um, the level design is great. Thief 2 has one of the best levels in gaming in it. Is it the Orphanage? That's actually uh, Shilbridge Cradle is in Deadly Shadows, and it's oh the best. ooh ouch yeah it's I just part of Deadly Shadows right right but uh, Thief Two has returned to the cathedral, um, and you know it's also noteworthy because it's kind of like a a very horror themed level uh, in the game. Um, the first game has the cathedral, and the second game has Return to the Cathedral, and Deadly Shadows has uh, Shilbridge Cradle, all three of which are like very scary and uh, tense levels. Um, and uh, they all stand out actually as being very good. Um, but now what, what makes them, uh, what makes them scary? Well, you're, you're just sneaking around. So nothing's going to see you, right? You're fine. So in talking about this, um, I've, I've 
I've since come to learn that this isn't true, but to give you an example of how good this game is at getting you in the head of uh, the character you're playing, um, I always had these levels are populated by like spirits and zombies, um, not things that you're normally encountering when you're like breaking into people's houses or you know uh, guard stations across the city. Um, I always had the distinct impression that the zombies could smell me. <laughs> I always felt like they were just a little bit quicker to pick up on where I was than the guards. And I always, I, I always, I could never shake that. I could never shake the feeling that they were just smelling me out. Like they had, and, they had their own set of rules they followed. It was unique. It was, there's not, I don't think that that's true, but it was terrifying. <laughs> like You're, no matter how well hidden you were, that zombie could still suss you out somehow. Exactly. And, that's awesome. you know. Thief, Thief makes a point of having a very vulnerable player character. Um, guards are good at kicking your ass, um, but you are an order of magnitude more vulnerable against zombies and ghosts and things of a supernatural nature. And so, like, it's already that much more tense. And then all of those levels, all three of those levels, make really good use of ambient sound. Um, you know, the sound design in Thief is like, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, yeah. the, the sound design of the Thief series is incredible. And it stands out really well on, on each of those levels. Um, everything in everything in the, the level design uh, of those three levels just serves to make a very tense, scary experience. Um, they, it's almost a different game. Now, you mentioned the, the sound design, and I'm sure that stuff holds up awesomely. Do you have any sense for whether or not it's viable to go back and play Thief 1 and Thief 2 these days? Well, I reinstalled them uh, since uh, when I got your message about doing this podcast. I reinstalled mm -hmm. Thief and Thief 2, uh, and it's totally doable. Um, it takes a little bit of technical work. There's actually some links in the thread on quarter to three to another forum called Through the Looking Glass. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I love those guys. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great it's a great community, um, and there's lots of good information about how to make Thief run uh, and modern Windows machines and stuff like that. Um, the the dark engine was never pretty. <laughs> let's say it was it was never very um, graphically attractive. But it, it, the game still grabs you. Um, I may be biased, you know. I'm I'm very very dedicated to Thief, but uh, it still it still holds my attention. And lots of older games have not. Right, right. Did so? Did you jump in? Did you have time to jump in and, and muck with either of them? I just played a little bit of Bafford's Manor again, the first level in Thief, um, but I fully intend to go back and replay both of them now. Now, what was that like coming to like a place from your childhood? I mean, that must have been great to revisit. Like, there there are a few games that I know that once I'm dropped in, I'll immediately get this like flood of recognition about where certain things are and 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 what to do. And if I go around this corner, I'm going to see this. That that must have felt pretty cool to go back into Bafford's Manor. Yes, it was great. And actually, in addition to like remembering all that stuff, you know, knowing exactly where to go and what I had to do, um, I also remembered like all the fun little things that I used to do in the level, like the things that I. I used to add to it. Um, it Can you give me another, an example? Yeah, another um, horrifying term that I hate to bring up in any conversation about games uh, is emergent narrative. <laughs> and, uh, Thief, Thief kind of introduced that to me when my friend who I would play the demo with, uh, he was running around out uh, in Bafford's Manor and he knocked out a series of guards. He knocked two guards out, one right after another with a blackjack. 
And guards who are knocked out in Thief never wake up over the course of a level. Once they're out, they're out. It's basically, it's, it's basically just like killing them, except you have to do it from the shadows. You can't, they can't be alerted to your presence and still be knocked out. And, uh, you know, it's also a requirement of the higher difficulty levels. You know, on the higher difficulty levels where you're not allowed to kill anybody, you just knock them out. Mm-hmm. And my friend had knocked these two guards out, and Thief also uh, required you to move bodies around. You couldn't just leave bodies lying around because obviously other guards would see them and know that something was up. And he <laughs> he placed two guard bodies directly on top of one another in uh, like the barracks room or whatever it was, and then he surrounded them with liquor bottles knowing that they would wake up in one another's arms <laughs> and be surrounded by booze and have no idea what happened awkward <laughs> exactly <laughs> so i remember i remember this unfolding and being just like so tickled that you know something like that had happened it, you know he really made use of like what limited interaction he has with a, a game to like make something hilarious out of it. And I immediately wanted to do that again. As soon as I started up thief uh, the other day, I just wanted to run and knock out two guards and recreate that awesome, awkward moment for them. That is fantastic, Frank. <laughs> now uh, let's talk a bit about what has happened to stealth since then. Uh, <laughs> has, has it been spoiled is, for you? Is this a family podcast? <laughs> Because, you could cuss all you want. Oh my golly! <laughs> I I hate stealth action games these days. I have there hasn't been a stealth game that's really that I've enjoyed um, nearly as much as I enjoyed Thief. Uh, the game systems have become far more arbitrary and way less interesting to me as a player. Um, and it always feels like stealth, even in games that are supposed to feature it very heavily, um, is like a tacked-on approach. Like it's how it's one of the ways that developers like talk about choice and multiple paths to the solution and stuff like that is by throwing in a stealth option. And I just uh, it's kind of it's kind of a dirty word these days. Yeah, it's and it should be. I mean, the way stealth has been treated over the last you know decade is terrible. It's <laughs> I'm struggling, and I struggled before this podcast to come up with an example of stealth in a game that I really liked. It actually wasn't bad in the in some of the uh, Elder Scrolls games. Um, it's it's kind of silly how you can like disappear directly in front of someone in a shop, steal all their stuff, and sell it right back to them. But they also have really good thief missions, like in uh, Oblivion and Morrowind. Yep. Um, but it is again just like a, a tacked-on element of a much larger picture. Well, Thief had the luxury of building the entire game world around their mm-hmm. mechanic, whereas it seems like other games, like I'm thinking recently of Alpha Protocol, which I really enjoyed, but stealth was just a way to briefly turn invisible as, right. as a kind of a reward. It's like you can get into a better position and then shoot the guys if you have stealth, I, uh, I, or you can skip this battle. Yeah, I really dislike the stealth in Alpha Protocol. Um, I liked Alpha Protocol quite a bit, um, more than by all rights I really should have. But uh, I, the stealth was just, it was just the only way you could get past people was, like, going into stealth mode. I, you know, any game that relies on, like, a stealth button, 
if there's a button I have to press to get into <laughs> stealth, you're automatically doing it wrong. When you turn your stealth on and you turn it off, it's that it's is, like it's like a Romulan cloaking system. That is right? awful. That is just <laughs> not okay. Um, another modern example, and I'm gonna catch hell for this, but uh, Batman Arkham Asylum has. I've only ever played the demo, so this may be different, but has one of the worst stealth systems <laughs> I can think of. Um, the idea that, like, I just need to go up on top of, like, a magical gargoyle that will then hide me from sight is... It's so lazy. It's the stealth gargoyle. What? It's, <laughs> uh, from the perspective of someone who likes stealth games and likes stealth, that is just not okay. I don't know who is greenlighting stealth <laughs> concepts that revolve around, like magical gargoyles that will hide my giant Batman avatar from the <laughs> sight of someone who is directly below me, but that's got to go. Now, did you, and I confess I haven't seen the, the most recent Splinter Cell, but I think a lot of time, like, I think they kind of inherited the mantle of, this is what stealth, how stealth games work. Uh, have you seen any of the Splinter Cell games? I, um, I lost interest in Splinter Cell pretty early on because I thought that no fail stealth was just as bad. Yeah. And they have since gotten away from that in my understanding, but, um, not no fail stealth is to me a broken idea. Now explain um, what that is when you say it, that. No fail stealth is the idea that as soon as you are detected and you're hidden, you fail the level and you need to restart from a, a checkpoint or a save. Right. Um, it's okay in limited use. Like if you make a very um, if you if you build up a good context for why that has to be the case, I'm okay with it in in the short term. Um, but for the most part, I really feel like there's no reason to ever punish your player for that. I think it should be more about like, okay, you got detected. Now what are you going to do about it? And I think in the later Splinter Cells, uh, they that's something they acknowledged and tried to address. Uh, mm -hmm. at, at this year's GDC, I heard a few talks where the most recent Splinter Cell, I think it was conviction uh it's the one that had some that it's the one it. is it conviction maybe it is but they had uh some oh yeah yeah district attorney was the previous or da whatever that stood for double a, agent exactly yes yeah. and then they did conviction and i know in conviction they had a few new ideas i think they had some cool ideas with co-op it's a game i didn't play but after hearing a few people talk about it i, I wished i had uh played it yeah uh, I, I i have that um kind of like on my list of games to pick up when they're cheap. Uh, and I'll, I'll give it a try, and I think I'll probably really enjoy it. It'll be nice to come back to that series after walking away from it. But uh, now I'm, I'm assuming you were a rogue in Dragon Age 2, is that correct? Absolutely. Was there any occasion where stealth... I don't even, how did they deal with stealth? Like, again, you just briefly stealth turn just invisible gives so you, you get a backstab, yeah, right? It just gives you combat bonuses. It's, yeah. it's, you can build up um, skill trees around it, but it, it's never... You know, this is like a whole other rant about how modern RPG design needs to start reincorporating more non-combat skills. Um, well, but this Mass Effect 2 did very well, and they didn't have to deal with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I agree still, with you, by the way, but uh, I, I, think I, I think that if you're going to have an RPG where you can play a rogue, you have to offer some kind of out-of-combat context, because rogues should not just be like... I'm just sick of Holy Trinity role-playing game design. I'm <laughs> sick of MMOs bleeding into single-player RPGs. It's got to go. Rogues are their melee DPS. What more do you want, Frank? 
I want to steal things. That's what I want. I want to sneak around and steal things that I otherwise would not have access to. You know that you, you mentioning like stealing stuff in Oblivion. You're absolutely right. Like and 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 even bringing up your your our shoplifting background. I mean, <laughs> the, one of the cool things I, I heard, and I wish I remembered who to credit with this, although I've heard it from a few places. One of the cool things about Thief and a well done stealth game is it makes you feel like you're getting away with something that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be doing. Absolutely. And when I'm just backstabbing a dude for double damage, I don't get that sensation. Yeah, that's especially when it happens in like the blink of an eye. Right. Like it does in <laughs> Dragon Age too. I, I I like I like the combat mechanics of rogues in games. I like the idea that you can go into stealth and like sneak around behind somebody and stab them in the back and do a bunch of damage, but there's no there's none of that these days like there's no there's no positioning certainly in dragon age 2 it's it's largely irrelevant but well, let me throw this at you uh mr i'm a rogue and didn't get any special non-combat abilities i hope mm-hmm. you enjoyed all the extra loot you got from being able to pick locks oh all those extra torn trousers and, <laughs> uh, what about did you get a bunch scarves? of extra yeah moth-eaten scarves come on yeah you could sell those <laughs> yeah that was awesome vendor trash that's that's yeah. what you get for being a rogue <laughs> yeah that was really cool i really appreciated all of those useless items that they put in the useless item category of my inventory <laughs> streamlining is awesome uh so you do have some then some reservations about uh thief four is that i haven't ducked into the head but is that kind of what's going on in there is I do. there's tourists? there's very little to go on i mean there's 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 nothing really um all the all that you can really do is look at Deus Ex. Um, and historically, there's even a precedent for that. You could look at Invisible War to try and figure out where Thief was going to go, mm-hmm. since Ion Storm was responsible for both the sequel to Deus Ex and Thief 2. Mm-hmm. Um, but all you can really do is look at Deus Ex and look at Thief and base your speculation on that. Um, I hope it plays out differently than it did with Invisible War and Deadly Shadows, because I was sorely disappointed um by both uh they're not they're not bad games um and i don't i don't mean to disparage them unnecessarily but uh they are they are disappointing in light of where they come from and i'm worried that thief will be more of the same especially especially and this is gonna this is gonna seem like such a minor nit to pick but when they announced the game and their announcement for the title involved just a picture of the thief logo in that like iconic scratchy font and their their way of denoting that it was thief four was by replacing the e with the number four <laughs> and i mean that's even poor lead speak is stupid but that's bad <laughs> speak like theof what, what? who I, thought I that was a good idea who thought that like theof would be appealing to people and people would be like oh man i'm so excited yeah, I don't think an an E replaced by a four is that, doesn't that, work. Yeah, that's 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 really forcing it. <laughs> that's, that has every sign of desperation. Yeah, uh, it was bad, and like that's just such a such a such a misstep to make in your first like showing to the world. Like if you can't get that right, you know, no one's gonna be excited for a while. I mean, it's cool that they're remaking Thief, but. Come on. Like. Well, let, let me ask you this. From just a, a blatantly commercial 
capitalistic perspective. Now, I know you live in Oakland. I know you root for this this St. Pauli team in Hamburg. I know you've got your radical leanings. But from a capitalistic perspective, do you think a game based on the mandates of the original thief, that whole risk-reward thing, the open world, uh, the the non-gamey stealth stuff, uh, do you think there's there's room in a modern AAA game for that kind of design? Like no, um, and I think that though that the only reason that I you know you take out the the term AAA from that question and my answer changes. Um, I this kind of harkens to that whole middle class games argument that was also going around on the games forum. Um, but I don't think that there is room in like a if you want your game to sell millions of copies, you cannot base a game on the thief lineage. Um, if you want your game to uh, explore like stealth action as a genre and possibly like grow a franchise off of that, that's different. But um, games have moved on from that kind of like that, that whole school of design where uh, the reliance was on the player rather than the game to get you through the challenges that it was facing. Um, And I, I really don't think that there's any room for that. And I, I I don't think that that fact is lost on Ubisoft in Montreal uh, or Idos in Montreal, whoever it is. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that, this is going to be a game really based on that lineage. I think that this is going to be a game more based on like uh, Deadly Shadows style uh, of Thief and hopefully applying that to a wider open space. Right. Um, I have have every hope that Thief 4 will be successful and that the people who make it will be happy with how it came out. Um, But I think that realistically, I don't expect it to be what I would want. Well, I, I, I am looking forward to, uh, I think Deus Ex Human Evolution is in August now. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that'll be the next, like, like until then, th- there'll be a lot of concrete stuff to consider at that point for what, what can this studio do with a thief game that I'm exactly. looking finding out. And it was, it was the same way with Invisible War. You know, Invisible War was a great indicator of where Thief was going to go. Right. Um, I remember... The same friend that I played the demo with a bunch of times, and I actually drove to New York City from Milwaukee to see Warren Spector talk at NYU. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and give a presentation about Invisible War. Um, and I talked to him afterwards about what a big Thief fan I was and how excited I was that he was, you know, and kind of related to where Thief was going from now on. And he and I talked for quite a bit about how much I was going to like Thief. Um, and Warren, I know you're not listening, but... You lied. Warren has every assurance <laughs> that I would really enjoy where Thief was going, and that was not the case. I think he would have said the same thing to you, Frank, about Epic Mickey. <laughs> I probably. <laughs> well, Frank, it has been awesome hanging out with you today. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been really cool. I uh, As you're playing Shogun 2, so actually anybody listening, if you're playing Shogun 2, there's a Steam group. Shogun 2 has this deal with clans where you can join a Steam group and it sets it up in-game as a clan. So Frank, next time you're on Shogun 2, go into the little multiplayer thing and join a clan. And one of the Steam groups is the quarter to three uh, RTS group. If you just do a search for quarter to three RTS, awesome. uh, then join that. And anybody playing Shogun 2, as you play, it adds to like our clan standing. 
and we earn like new stuff we can use. Uh, it's totally like an, a weird MMO guild ripoff kind of deal. Excellent. Uh, so jump well, I'll definitely there. do that. I'll definitely be playing more of that. So. Cool. Good. So, all right. So, uh, folks listening, uh, appreciate you coming around. If you want to be on the Quarter to Three podcast, uh, do a search for Quarter to Three podcast master list on the forum. You can put your name in that thread and join us. Alternatively, send me an email at tomchick at quarter to three dot com. We would love to have you. Uh, Frank, thank you very much. And uh, I guess we'll be seeing you around on the forum. I'll be there. Thanks a lot, Tom. Take care, Frank. <laughs>